Adobe, I want to begin by wishing you a happy birthday. Thank you. It looks Thank like you, you had a wonderful to... celebration and uh, and got a chance to get away a little bit and relax a little bit. Thank you, Carter. I did. I turned 50, so I'm a half a century years old now, um, and I went skydiving in Zanzibar, Tanzania. Have you ever done that before? Never, never. I, I am a bit of a thrill seeker, and it was something I figured at some point in my life I would do, but I didn't think I'd be doing it at 50. I am jealous because I've never gone skydiving. I've always wanted to go skydiving, but I think I would also be a little scared at that moment of jumping out of an airplane. You know, Casa, there is something about going up to about 12,000 feet above sea level and you think, okay, we've gone high enough now. <laughs> can, we, um, can we do this thing? And then physically getting pushed out of a plane with no door um, was quite a, yeah, it was quite an experience. So I will say that the first probably 10 seconds of free fall, my eyes were shut. <laughs> and then I opened up and, and the rest of it was, was, was amazing. Once the shoot deployed, what was that experience like? To be honest, I don't, I just remember my coach said, Adobe, you handled the shoot a lot better than I thought you would. I had instructions, <laughs> but I really felt like I was navigating this thing, holding onto this thing for dear life. But it actually didn't, it didn't, it didn't feel that different because I was so focused on just looking down and enjoying the view. Yeah. I mean, if you know anything about Tanzania, it's, it's, you know, it was all Indian Ocean. Water was turquoise. I love the ocean. After the initial free fall, I really was just in awe mode, just really enjoying the view of the ocean. But I wasn't really paying too much attention to sort of the mechanics of the exercise. Sure. I have not gone skydiving. I have gone parasailing twice mm. um, where you're, you're on a rope behind a boat with a parachute. Right. And had two very different experiences. My, the first time I did it, it felt calm. It felt just like I was floating through the air. I thought I could mm. sit here all day. You could, you know, mm. put a pulley on this, send a book up, and I'd be fine just hanging out all day. <laughs> the second time I did it uh, was a couple years ago, and it was as rough as could be. And I was hanging on oh. with white knuckles and dipping and diving and all over the place. Oh, wow. So it was two oh, very wow. different experiences uh, floating above the earth. Interesting. Well, I'll say that unlike most experiences, most sort of thrilling things that you do, it comes to an end. You're like, wow, that was it. With skydiving, it was a long 15 minutes. I remember feeling like, okay, I've had enough and we need to get down now. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Yes, you were, absolutely. You had met your moment. I had met my moment and I was ready to come down. Like the longer I thought about the implications of what we were doing, I was like, okay, um, it's been good. I've had enough. And 15 minutes really is a long time to be up there. Well, yeah. congratulations. 50, 50 years. Uh, happy birthday. And that. it was you. very fun to watch you uh, explore and relax in Tanzania via social media. And I Thank enjoyed you. seeing all of those pictures. Awesome. We Thank have some so. news for the podcast, which is we've brought on a social media manager. It's my teenage daughter, Laurel who is going to manage our accounts for us. That is awesome. The power of the medium. It's what's kept our friendship alive. It's what's keeping this podcast alive. So absolutely great to have uh, Laurel on board. I'm grateful that she's willing to do it. And she, I think, has enjoyed doing it. And as you follow us on Instagram and follow us on Twitter at Key and Kite Pod, I'm checking that both of those accounts every day. What I found was that it was too difficult to just find the time to keep that going along with keeping the podcast going along with keeping everything else in our lives going. So our day jobs, our day jobs, yes. right. <laughs> Laurel has decided that, that she can come on and help us out for at least for a while and manage those accounts for us. And we're thankful that she's willing to do that. Absolutely. But enough chatter about us. We have a show to do today. Uh, very excited to have an old friend of mine, Jim McCorkle, who founded a, an interesting organization called College Possible. Jim McCorkle is the founder and former CEO of College Possible, a U.S. nonprofit organization making college admission and success possible for low-income students through an intensive curriculum of coaching and support. 
He currently serves as a senior advisor to the organization. During his 20 years with College Possible, the organization grew from a startup in his spare bedroom into a national organization reaching 25,000 low-income students with an annual budget of $30 million. Under Jim's leadership, 98% of students in the program earned admission to college. Today, Jim is helping coach and develop leaders through his consulting practice, Accelerate Consulting, as well as teaching and serving on nonprofit boards. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate you taking some time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk to you. A little over 20 years ago, you started an organization called College Possible. And on the website today for College Possible, it says it describes College Possible as an organization that is among the largest nonprofit college access and success organizations in the U.S. And it says that College Possible believes that by empowering students to access higher education and thrive through college in the face of broader systemic challenges, we can truly change the world. I'm curious why College Possible is needed, what the need is that that College Possible is trying to fill. Well, it's a good question. And, you know, the reason I started it is, you know, partly personal, which we could talk about, but the kind of the policy side of it is is really clear, which is that almost all of the job growth and wage growth in America now goes to people who have some form of post-secondary education. It's uh, where almost all of that growth is. So that's kind of where you'd like uh, both individually people to be. If it's your own child, you'd like them to get an education, get a chance to make a good living. But as a society, we would like to see uh, you know, a productive workforce that can com- compete on a global scale. So like, I think everybody kind of understands that, 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 that that's the, the, the direction toward more education is the trend. Not, not to say that everybody has to go to college, but that uh, that's where an awful lot of the growth is. But yet at the same time, we see an enormous disparity in who gets a college degree and who doesn't, especially by socioeconomic status and race. So, you know, if you look at who will earn a college degree in America, uh, upper income students are, depending on the data you look at, are at least five times more likely to earn a college degree than their low income peers. So it's one of the greatest disparities that we have in society. There's a lot of things you look at where you know, you'll say, you know, somebody earned, you know, the, the difference is 15% or something, you know, but this, this disparity is like 5X. And of course it's conflated with a lot of issues related to uh, race, gender, immigration status, and so forth. So, you know, it, it, in my view, and I think uh, in the view of, of the folks that are now leading College Possible, which I, I can't really speak for them anymore, but, um, <laughs> but as the founder of the organization, I think there's a great opportunity for our country to, to both do the right thing for its people, to help every person get a fair shot to go as far as their talents will take them in life, kind of the moral argument, but it's also the right thing for our country in terms of our economic future and prosperity. You know, we're no longer a place where, you know, here in Minnesota, we're competing with Iowa or, you know, one state's competing against another state. We're now in in an environment where we're really competing on a global stage uh, for uh, the best educated people to create the, the innovations that lead us into the future. So I think it's both the right thing, right moral thing to do. And it's also the right thing economically for our country's uh, vibrancy in the future. That five times number is, is a stunning number. What causes that disparity? It's really the culmination of a series of disparities, you know, and it, it sounds kind of crazy. I feel like I sound like a crazy liberal when I say this, but it really goes back to even birth uh, and even in some ways before birth, poor women uh, often have children before they're ready. They often have children out of wedlock. Uh, so even the decision to have a child. And then once they're pregnant, they often get inadequate prenatal care. And so there it begins. And those those inadequacies and those, and those deficiencies accumulate. Uh, so once a child is born into a poor family, they're much more likely to be a single parent household. So now they have less money. They have less parental support. 
there's studies about how many words a kid will hear in a low income family compared to a middle class or upper income family. So all of those things sort of accumulate. They tend to live in areas where the schools uh, ha- are lower performing, whether that's in a poor urban area or isolated uh, rural areas. The best schools in our country are either the private schools or the the fairly wealthy suburban schools, you know, which is where, where a lot of uh, people go as soon as they can. They try to get to the school. They try to get their own kids out of systems that don't work. So they accumulate. And then, of course, mixed into all of this are the racial implications. The vast majority of people of color don't do very well in any of these environments. They do, we have problems with performance in the public school system. We have challenges with them. Once they get into college, you look at the racial disparity about who persists in college and who doesn't. And some of that is just coincident with being low income. But scholars that look at it who can kind of disaggregate the racial aspect from the economic aspect see that there's a real racial aspect to it. And so that is some of the institutional racism that's built into how our colleges uh, select and evaluate students. They often are selecting on on metrics that also correlate with race and income. They're looking at test scores, for example, ACT or SAT test scores. Those correlate almost perfectly with a family's income and whether the parents went to college And of course, those things correlate really well, really closely with race. So it's a complex web of things that culminate in a huge disparity in who gets the opportunity to go to college and who doesn't. You know, as I often say, it's not fair to those students and it's not the right thing for our country. We'd be a better, stronger country if everybody had an equal chance to go wherever they want their life to go, whether that includes college or a two-year program or a degree or certificate. Any of those range of options should be available to everybody equally. We're going to get into a little more of the the system and, and systemic issues. But before we do that, I'd like to go back to College Possible because you created a model that really worked in helping kids get into college and succeed in college. Talk just a little bit about what that model was and what that model is, because it's still going on, and talk about why it was successful. The essence of the College Possible model, the central innovation that we brought to the field of education was new. It was a new idea. It was to take uh, the use of AmeriCorps members, which is a form of national service. Usually it's young people. People, I often describe it as sort of like a domestic Peace Corps. It's an opportunity for young people to sign up for a year or two of service. The programs people have mostly heard of are, are things like Teach for America, City, or, or some of the big organizations that use a lot of AmeriCorps members. So our central idea, I had worked at City Year, so I'd seen the power of national service. And I thought, what if we recruited a cadre of young, idealistic, energetic, recent college graduates to go back into mostly our, you know, at, at the beginning, urban public schools. Eventually, we expanded to rural areas and some, some entering suburban areas as well to pair up those students with someone who's close in age to them, somebody we call a near peer mentor. At College Possible, we actually call them a coach, a near peer coach. Um, And there's something really magical about this. Uh, I didn't know if it would work, but it turned out it did work. And I think that the reasons it works is that, you know, an older person can go try to tell a young person how to do this process. Like some of us, uh, like I have a 16 year old son now. And, you know, I talk to my friends, you know, try to explain to your, your, your own kid even how to do it. They look at you a little bit like, you know, you know, maybe back in your era, like they think they can't relate to you in the same way a near peer coach can. But the other really key aspect of the college possible model that I was, you know, have always been very proud of is it's a, it's very efficient. So by recruiting people who are essentially volunteering their time to serve their country, you're driving down the cost of the model very significantly. So compared to other major federally funded programs, college possible was a fraction of the cost And that matters because there's so many kids who aren't getting any help. So if you want to help more students, you're going to either need more money or you're going to need to do it more efficiently or both. I actually think we should do both. But driving down the cost per student served is really important. And then finally, I'll say it really works. We had 
uh, a number of third-party evaluations done over the years, including one by uh, Harvard University, the gold standard of evaluation, that is a randomized control trial evaluation where you really control for a lot of things. And it showed that the program works. So I think the potential for the college possible model is really great. And the last thing I'll say is that model has now been independently replicated by other organizations. There's now lots of organizations that use AmeriCorps members. They might have a, a different model. They might take a slightly different approach. But things vary by community, by region of the country. But the basic idea of calling on our youngest generation to come into service to their country is not only a great way to run like a college access program, it's also really a great way to make good citizens who interact with people who are different from them and, and they get a richer sense, uh, you know, set of experiences. Some of them stay in education, some of them go and do other things, but they always carry with them in their heart, a commitment to their community and to their country. And it's it's honestly one of the things in our political uh, environment right now where, where it feels, feels like we're sort of pulling apart. I think it's one of those things that could help, you know, help you. It's not going to be a panacea, but it could bring us together the idea of serving our communities and our country. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that struck me as I was getting ready for this conversation, and you and I have known each other for 25, 30 years now, is you always struck me as someone who knew how to create and take advantage of mentors for yourself. I think about the power of the adults that you had in your life, your parents, Paul Wellstone, some of the others in that when you were a kid and, and in your early adult years that played a really powerful role in, in helping you grow and develop and think through what you wanted to do with your life. And it struck me that what you did was create an organization that helped create that for thousands of kids around the United States, right? The, all of a sudden, thousands of kids had a peer group and mentors and the importance of that connection for people just really struck me as something that is a skill set you seem to have uh, back when we first met uh, in our early 20s. Talk about the power of mentorship and the power of your role models and mentors growing up in helping you get to the point where you could launch such a successful organization and, and how that plays out now for kids who are struggling trying to figure out how to make that step into college. There's certainly a personal aspect, which maybe I'll touch on in a second, but like sort of the, the research-based uh, part of this is that people who are middle-class and affluent have much richer social networks. And so a typical you know, white, middle, upper middle-class suburban student is gonna have access to a set of relationships in their community, coaches, uh, church or synagogue or mosque leader, you know, their religious community uh, groups that they're in. And you don't see that as much often in communities that are struggling more. So I think an aspect of what College Possible was, is doing is, is trying to help infuse a community with some of the helpers. And the thing about recent college graduates is they're kind of perfect for a college access program because they just did it. You know, they just went through it themselves. So they're sort of intuitively plausible messengers to the students because the students say, you know, you did it. You know, in my case, uh, you know, part of why I started the organization is that I grew up in a, a poor family. My own parents didn't finish high school. Uh, my mom got pregnant. They dropped out of school and they started their lives and had you know pretty hard lives. I mean, we weren't the poorest people in the world. I don't know if we would have identified ourselves as being poor at the time. I find that very common among low-income people. They don't wouldn't self-identify that way, but objectively, you know, it's a matter of fact. There's not very much money there. But my parents managed. Uh, eventually, got their GED, so they you know they had a commitment to that part of their education, and then they ensured that all five of their children made it to college. You know, so I had them and I had my siblings. I'm the youngest of those five. I had the pathway that was blazed by them. You know, I had uh, neighbors who encouraged me. And then later on, I was fortunate to go to Carleton College where I met Paul Wellstone, the former senator from Minnesota, who was both a, a huge inspiration to me, encouraging his students to go out into the world and make the difference that they believe in and to turn away from the cynicism that says that nothing will ever get better. Everybody's going to take advantage of you and everybody's ultimately corrupt. <laughs> Your cynicism can get tested a lot uh, over a lifetime when you see the behavior of, of some, some of our leaders, political and otherwise. But at, at its core, you've got to believe that 
that most people are good, most people want to help other people and will do so uh, when they get the chance. So, so I think there's a power in that. And it's not just a, just beneficial for the, the student who gets the chance to go to college. I think, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I think for the AmeriCorps members, it's a powerful part of developing their professional skill set, their orientation toward the world, and their orientation toward the idea of being in service to others and to sharing what you have with other people. You know, some people criticize some of this as being like a savior mentality. And there's probably room to have a discussion about that. But that wasn't my experience. My experience was it was people who are kind of in the spirit of charity. It was the spirit of, I have something that I could share with others that would be beneficial to them. It wasn't that you're better than them or anything like that. It's, it's really about saying, how can I help other people uh, with what I've got to give. And I think that's a powerful thing. Some people do it with their money, with charitable contributions, and some people do it with their time and expertise and talents. I think it's a rich part of the American experience. Before we get to talking about just the college system today, you've talked a lot in this conversation about the role of service. Talk a little more about the power of community service as a value and as an action people can take and what it does for us and for our communities and for our states and for our country? Well, I think it's so powerful. I think it is. It's maybe not uniquely American, but there is a thread in America of this that it, that runs deep and goes to the beginning of our history. Alex de Tocqueville you know, talked about how we join groups and we organize together in ways that seem different from other countries. You know, if you look, for example, at almost the deep honor most of us will give to people who have served the military, uh, there, there are probably some segments of society that maybe aren't, aren't respectful there. But in general, I'd say the vast majority of people have enormous and deep respect for people who volunteer to serve our country in the military, and especially people who give give their life or a limb or something like that, this enormous sacrifice. And so you can kind of sense that there's a deep emotional pull to this idea of sacrifice. Uh, former Senator John McCain used to talk about serving a cause larger than yourself. And this ties into an awful lot of uh, religious ideas as well about how we can you know, be our brother's keeper, how we can share what we have with others in order to make the community better. So I think there's a powerful thread there. You know, I think the other thing that you often hear, uh, you know, when I used to sit with uh, former core members or core members at the end of their year, and they'd say, you know, I joined this program because I wanted to help other students get a chance to go to college like I did. And actually, when I reflect, I actually feel like I got more, I got more out of it than they did. And I think that's often the case when we volunteer or give or are charitable. It brings out the best in us and it's a uniting force. And I think there's an opportunity uh, for our country to do more of it. I think it would be better. Uh, some people talk about universal service, mandatory service. I don't think I'd be in favor of mandatory service, but I would love to see people have the opportunity to do more service because I think it is one of the things, it's not a panacea, but it's one of the things that helps people find their commonality, to come together, to build, rebuild in America some of our trust and mutual respect for each other across differences, across race, across some of the key dividing lines, urban, rural, some of the dividing lines of our country. I think it's what brings us together. And I think more opportunities to do it would be good. One of the driving forces for me in, in starting this podcast, I've, I've spent most of my career working for nonprofits and meeting other people who work for nonprofits. And as I was thinking about this podcast, I was thinking about all the people I know that are doing good work and finding solutions to the challenges that face us. And highlighting those people and those organizations and showing the world that there is, that there are solutions in a world that often feels cynical and often feels like maybe there aren't solutions, I think is powerful. And I think the more we're able to hopefully connect people with nonprofits, with ideas of solutions that are out there so that they can get involved and get engaged and serve is really one of the driving forces behind the podcast because it does bring us together. It unites us. And the personal benefit you get from doing that kind of work 
Kevin Turf, who was a guest on a previous episode of the podcast, called it the helper's high. That that feeling that you get when when you are engaged in serving others, the helper's high. The the it's almost like an adrenaline rush, and and I think it's really powerful. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I used to say, I'll just say one little yeah. nugget on that. I used to say to our team, you know, especially toward the end of the year as they were wrapping up, these these AmeriCorps members, everyone on the team worked hard, but especially the AmeriCorps members, they didn't make very much money. It was it was not unusual for our AmeriCorps members to be working 50, 60, even 70 hours in a week, you know, for really no money. But they get to the end of the year and we kind of see how the results were accumulating and they kind of have that high. And I used to say, the feeling of being part of a cause larger than yourself, of helping change the world, to help change the trajectory of someone else's life is one of the most powerful feelings you can ever have. And no amount of money can buy it. The wealthiest person on earth can't buy it. There's no way to shortcut it or cheat it. The only way you get that feeling is by actually doing something that is somewhat selfless or maybe totally selfless. I don't want to like sound like you have to be an angel or something, but like to, to give of yourself to others is really an important part of being human. At the end of the day, I think a lot of times, you know, when you, you, know, you go to a funeral and you hear people reflecting on someone's life, very often there are stories about how somebody, that person helped other people, whether it was their children or people in their community or their church or whatever. Those are the lasting elements of meaning in life. And so I think we're going to be a richer country when we can do more of that and less time, you know, on Twitter, you know, complaining at each other or being snarky. You know, that is so corrosive. The cynicism is so corrosive to a good society. It is. And it's not, I think sometimes people get caught up in the idea that they have to do something big. And it's not something, you don't have to do something big. You can do, uh, you know, you can do a couple little things a day uh, and just make someone feel good. I grew up in Minnesota. I live in Colorado now. We get blizzard. And every year now, someone online in our neighborhood will post, I don't know who, you know, shoveled my driveway, but thanks to whoever did it. And I'm willing to bet that the person who did the shoveling feels really good just about having done it mm-hmm. and having helped someone else out. Well, I want to move now to the college, pro- back to the college process. And we have kids that are either in that college process or about to be in that college process. I've got a son who's a first year student in college, a daughter who's a senior in high school and all the resources in the world. My kids go to a well-resourced school that provides a ton of support for students looking to go to college. And I can't help but look at the college system, having now gone through this process with my son, going through with my daughter, and think that something feels broken. Is that a common feeling for parents? Have you heard that? And and is it? You know, I think the system is fundamentally broken. I mean, it, it, you could look at it and you could say, you know, on what basis would you make that claim? Well, certainly, I think you can make it on the on the on the basic claim of does it seem like a fair or equitable system that is reasonably fair to all different people. Uh, It's not. It is just, it clearly is not that. But even, you know, when I talk to uh, wealthy people who went to college themselves, who have every resource in the world, you know, they very often, when they hear about my, my life's work, they'll say, oh God, I can't even imagine what it would be like if you were a single mother who was working two jobs or you were an immigrant to this country. You didn't either, you didn't, maybe didn't speak English or didn't, didn't speak it very well. Didn't understand our customs. Didn't understand the language, the systems, the, all of that, you know, like, so I think if you have a system that even essentially the wealthiest power, most powerful people find overwhelming and they do, uh, there's a huge industry in uh, middle-class and upper-middle-class families paying for help. Here I am uh, now with a 16-year-old and, you know, we're going to get our son some test prep. You know, we're going to pay money for that. And I feel conflicted about it because I think that is what uh, exacerbates the inequities. But yet, you know, rational individual actors feel like they don't have much choice. I would like my son to have the best choices available to him. So, and we have the resources, so we're going to do it. So there's something that's not right in that system. You know, if you take, for example, the test scores of the ACT or the SAT, as I mentioned earlier, they correlate very most most closely with whether the parents went to college and how much they earned. But they're also wrong in other key ways on gender. The SAT, for example, boys do better on the math section of the SAT than girls do. And yet the purpose of the test is to predict who will succeed in college. 
And young women do much better. Well, maybe I shouldn't maybe say much better, do better as first year students than men do. So you have a test that's used to as a key factor in admission that literally doesn't do what, it's, what it needs to do. It's literally advantaging boys over girls when the thing it's supposed to predict is not, it, you know, turns out not to be true. So the system is not very good. It's, it's needlessly complex. If you look at the cost structure, a lot of people simply say the cost has gotten too high. That's true. And we could talk about that. But there's not any transparency on the cost either. Except for the most elite schools, almost every school gives what they call merit aid, which is essentially a discount, and they're very sophisticated. I think most people would be shocked to know the level of sophistication colleges and universities use to try to get you to pay the most you would possibly pay. So it's just like buying a car. It's asymmetrical information. The salesperson is trying to extract the most possible revenue out of you. And if you'll pay the full price, then they'll take it. And if you won't, what they do is they'll give some money. You know, so, so let's suppose their sticker price is $50,000. And you know, I, I talk to people all the time and they'll say, oh, my daughter got a $20,000 scholarship. We were thrilled. It's awesome. We can't believe this merit scholarship. And I hate to burst their bubble, but it's usually not really merit. It's really just a discount. Uh, there are some institutions now in America, some, some institutions that literally give a discount to every single student. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't even make any sense. Like the original idea was you'd have your wealthy students pay the full price and you you would discount it for some others. That could make some sense. It, you know, so basically you're trying to charge the almost an inflated price to people who are affluent. That has sort of some equalizing or progressive aspects to it. But it's starting to collapse now where the price is so high and everybody gets paid. And then it becomes like this opaque uh, system where you're like, you know, am I getting screwed if I send my kid to a school where they got $20,000 scholarship? Because maybe you should work getting screwed. If you just uh, compare, you know, said, hey, our, our daughter applied to this other school and they're giving 30, it's like a bidding war. They'll probably match. The whole system is, is not rational. It's needlessly complex. It has uh, outcomes that are not fair to, especially to low-income people and people of color. Something's got to give. It is not a good system when nobody likes it. <laughs> you know the the uh, scandal with the all the famous Hollywood people. You know who are literally paying bribes. I mean, it's all the way up through that. Although, you know, that's sort of the most egregious thing, and people focus on that. It's it, I, what I like to say to people is the the whole system, even if you just behave normally is not good. It's not rational. doesn't have good outcomes for almost anybody. My daughter got a postcard yesterday from a college that offered her on the postcard, three scholarships, one scholarship for her grades. Uh, and I think, I think that was about 20 grand. And then they said, if you come and visit our campus, just walk on the campus, we'll give you a thousand dollar scholarship. And I'm doing air quotes for people who, who can't see us right now. Um, I'm not sure how that's really a scholarship. Um, I'm not sure there's scholar any any kind of scholarly process involved there. And then if you sit through our info session, we'll give you another thousand dollar scholarship. And I'm looking at this postcard and going, where? I, I don't understand that how that makes sense at all. I, I really don't get it. Well, I'll tell you, I can I can tell you how it makes sense for them. They, there is a massive competition for these students. So one of the one of the challenges our country has is the demographics are starting to shift and the population in at least some parts of the country uh, are, is of the college age students is diminishing. There's a, an intense competition for students in general, but especially for parents who could pay most of the tuition. So they'll do anything they can. It's almost like a free, it's almost like they're, you're trying to sell. A, I go to the Minnesota State Fair and the guy's trying to sell a salsa maker. You know, and the whole, and he basically get, you know, you know, at the end, if you wait till the end, he's going to give you a chip with a little bit of salsa on there and you get a free chip. You know, it's like, that's almost what they're trying to do. If you, if you'll, we'll give you a thousand dollars if you'll even come and sit and listen to our pitch. Right. right? Yeah. Because they know if you listen to the pitch, you might apply. Right. You know, most kids, if they, they don't visit very many camps. They visit one campus. They're like, oh, I love that college. It's because they've never seen any other campus. Sure. But these all algorithms that they use are very sophisticated. They keep track of for sure whether a kid visited or not. Now, that's a legitimate one. Like you could rationalize if a kid visits a campus, they're indicating interest in that school, but they do other things. Like they track how many times do you go to their website? There's cookies on everything, so they're following that. And so 
what their algorithm tells them is whether the student is, if the student's very interested, their school X, they really want to go to, they log in all the time. They're checking for the, you know, we're <laughs> checking for their, did they get admitted or not? They have an algorithm for that. And they know that that student will probably pay more than a student who appears more indifferent. So they use everything. It's, I think the thing people would be surprised by is how sophisticated the data analysis is. And you can't really blame them. You know, if you're trying to run a college and you don't have enough applicants and you don't, and revenue is, is stretched thin and the costs keep going up, they're under enormous pressure to try to get the highest paying customers they can. In that sense, it's really not a lot different than an awful lot of other businesses in a capitalist society. It's just... I think most parents don't realize to some degree, I think they're getting duped. Yeah. And, and then the economics of the whole system seem to be uh, out of whack. And so you've got a school like Harvard, which has an endowment that if they stopped fundraising today and just spent their endowment, they'd be around for a long, long time. They'd, they'd be able to survive. Uh, it's massive. And you have other schools that are you know, worried about surviving economically. It's really interesting having gone with my daughter to look at a number of colleges you can almost feel the economic difference between a school that has a big endowment and a school that doesn't have a big endowment or especially among the private schools but even with state schools you can feel the difference how do we fix this how do we how do we fix this system so that we're not creating these massive disparities with low-income kids we're getting people into college the way they should be into college, and yet we're doing so in a way that makes sense economically for the colleges. Yeah, I'll talk about a couple, a couple, two different parts of the system. So the like kind of the you know the public system, I think I think we can see real clearly what to do there on the elite schools like the Harvards, uh, and I'm a grad a graduate of the Harvard Kennedy School, and uh, I remember going there and thinking, wow, is this a different experience? You know, every napkin has like the logo on. I mean, it's it's they have a lot of money and it's really <laughs> fancy. And, you know, there's something really almost obscene about wealthy people donating ever more money to the wealthiest school and they're under no obligation to spend it. You know, when when a wealthy person sets up a, a private foundation, our laws require them over time to be spending at least 5% of their assets endowments don't are not required to do that so one of the policy solutions you know for the for certain level endowments you wouldn't want to do this probably for every size endowment but especially for the the extra the one you know harvard could have every student go to to their college and all of the graduate schools for free just paying uh, uh, from a draw probably a modest draw i, I, mean, I can't even remember what they i think it's like 30 or 40 billion dollar endowment yeah. it's it's obscene so i think there's some techniques you could put into those elite institutions to get them to spend some of that money but of course they're among the most uh, powerful people in the country so you know they're not going to do that a lot of our <laughs> leaders i mean look at our supreme court you know you look at the supreme right. court yeah. congress what percentage of people came from harvard yale and so forth so but that's actually maybe not that big a problem. A small portion of kids even go to those places. Sure. The biggest problem we have is in the public system in that states have systematically underinvested in the public institution. So the institutions say, well, if we have less money from the state, what are we going to do? They don't have very many choices uh, to some degree than go try to fundraise, but state institutions can't compete with Harvard for, for the fundraising. They do their best. The only other lever they really have is to raise tuition. So uh, that is really awful. Like if you go look at, a, at, a, uh, at the data from a couple generations ago, say 1980, what percent of the revenue of a, say, a, a state or a major state university, a flagship campus, what percent came from state spending versus tuition versus fundraising? You know, it used to be the vast majority would come directly from the state. The state was subsidizing because they viewed it as a public good for the people of their state. Uh, you know, they were literally land grant institutions. They were meant to be for the public good. And then systematically over time, legislatures, uh, both Democrat and Republican legislatures have done this, although Republicans have been worse. But it's but it's often bipartisan. They under invest in their higher ed institutions. The institutions have no real choice but to raise the tuition and now we have a component of the problem that 
uh, keeps low-income kids out. They look at a state university and they say, if it costs $30,000 to go there, and my pay- our family doesn't make $30,000. Yeah. How could I ever afford that? So that's a problem. The, the, and the solution to that is for states to invest more in the higher education. I also think we haven't talked much about this, but there's also a huge opportunity to drive more efficiency in higher education. We still do higher education mostly the same as it's ever been done with you know a person standing in front of a class talking <laughs> and almost no technology being used in at least that drives efficiency. So I think there's opportunities to reduce costs as well. And then for the issues that I care most about, about helping students from low income families get there, the opportunity there is for our country to invest more in need-based financial aid that helps subsidize college for the kids who can't afford it, as opposed to our system now where a lot of the aid is merit aid that goes to middle-class and wealthy families who don't really necessarily need it. Yeah. Uh, somebody, I mean, they, they might quibble about that. They might think they need it. They don't need it as much as somebody who literally doesn't have any money. Sure. I do think it's interesting when we when we look at the system, and I'm in a position now where I'm going to have two kids in college, and we're going to need some aid, but we can't afford to pay a significant chunk. Um, hopefully no college admissions offices are listening to the podcast. <laughs> don't say that out loud. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I know plenty of kids and plenty of families who don't have that ability and who who look at college and don't even think that they can have the conversation with their kids, right, about being able to go to college because it just feels too daunting. That's right. It's There is an optical you know, an optics issue that we have here that I kind of was alluding to that, you know, if you come from a low income family and you look at the, the price tag of a lot of colleges, especially the private colleges, yeah. often have higher price tags, you, you know, you need to be pretty sophisticated to understand, oh, well, the sticker price isn't what you'd pay. You're going to, there's going to be a net cost of attendance after the institutional aid, the need-based aid, Pell Grants, state grants. And you're like, in my family, uh, two of my siblings went to the University of Minnesota. Two went to another state school in Minnesota. I ended up going to Carleton College, which is the most expensive school in the state. Because they're a wealthy school, I was able to go there and take it for about the same cost as my siblings went to much more affordable schools. So it's counterintuitive. You know, we didn't have much money. Carleton wouldn't seem like a good place for me. It's the most expensive place. But sometimes, you know, what we used to say to the low-income students in our program is, you have to apply and see where it all shakes out. You might be surprised by where, you know, who can give you a good deal and who can't. For middle-class parents, it's more complex. You know, and, and I do think there's a legitimate, I wouldn't want anyone to listen and think that I don't believe that middle-class people are getting squeezed as well. They are, uh, and that's kind of where I think the opportunity to drive some more efficiency. The cost of higher education has been going up at a rate greater than inflation for my entire lifetime, and I'm 53. Nothing, you know, healthcare and higher education are two things that keep going up at this extraordinary rate that is just literally unsustainable. It cannot go up at that rate forever without something giving. Uh, the first thing it gives is any sense of fairness, and eventually the whole thing is going to collapse if we don't find ways to, to make it more cost efficient uh, and so that people can afford to do it. The one other thing I do want to say, though, on the cost thing, because I wouldn't, you know, one of the other things I often um, get concerned about is that people say, well, it costs so much and it's gotten too high. It's not worth going to college. And so I would hate to leave this podcast without yeah. saying this one uh, nugget here, which is for almost everybody who graduates from college, it was a very good deal to go to college, almost no matter what they paid. Right. The lifetime uh, increase in earnings for a person who graduates from college is on the order of a million dollars. Even at these extraordinarily high prices, it's a good deal. The key thing is the kids need to graduate. People are surprised at what percentage of Americans who start college of any background don't graduate. It's only uh, a little over 50% of all people who start a four-year degree program will ever earn their degree. Uh, That's the problem. If you go to college and take on debt and don't graduate, you know, then all bets are off. Then that was not a good decision. So more thought, you know, to the extent we have some listeners here who are like, like you and me, we're thinking, where yeah. did my kid go? You really want to look at an institution and see what their graduation rates look like. Make sure your kid's going to have a really good chance at graduating. And then, of course, the other part is, will they be able to get uh, an education that allows them to get a job 
And if they do have some debt, that will help them pay that off. you got to get those pieces to fit. But in general, even at the extraordinary cost it's gone to, it's still worth it. Absolutely. I completely agree with you on that. I'm curious, as we wrap up, you spent 20 years building and running College Possible, and then you did something that, in my experience, founders of organizations don't always do, and you stepped away. What's life like on the outside, and what's next for you? Yeah, well, I appreciate the question. It is uh, it is hard to step away. You know, it's kind of, I've described College Possible as my baby, and it, that is a challenge. But I do really believe in, you know, with every fiber of my being that every organization needs some change in leadership over time, needs new leaders who bring new energy, new ideas, new, uh, new, new everything. Uh, That's true. That's the way we structure our leadership. You know, the presidency turns over, you know, many, most corporations, the CEO doesn't stay the leader for too long. And so, yeah, I was aware of that. I also had some health challenges three years ago. I had a battle with colon cancer at age 50. So I always encourage everybody, uh, man or woman, uh, as you approach 45 or 50 to be getting a colonoscopy. Uh, that's what saved my life was to see that. And, and you're doing okay now? I'm healthy now, but Good. I did have yeah. surgery and sure. I had uh, six months of chemo. So um, all of that helped me sort of say, maybe it's time to take a step back in my life. And so I'm sort of semi-retired. I'm doing consulting projects now uh, on a part-time basis, basically with the theme of trying to help other people create and grow their own nonprofit organizations in, in doing something to help the world. It's sort of like now I'm the grizzled old wise wise man trying to share my hard-earned <laughs> wisdom with others. So I'm trying to go more in that direction as opposed to being the person who's actually in the arena doing all the work and instead trying to help other people with a, with a focus on non-traditional leaders. So I'm really interested in helping people who haven't always had an opportunity to lead, uh, get the chance to do so and to be successful when they do. In my mind, you and I are both still in our 20s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of kidding about being an old man here. But, yeah. uh, you know, you start to look in the mirror and you're like, well, maybe, uh, maybe. Catch, it does catch up a little bit. College Possible is such an impressive organization. And I, I, I've been away from Minnesota. I moved away a long time ago, but getting to watch uh, through social media and online and, and see you build that organization into the success it became. Uh, and really uh, beyond that, Getting to read through articles you've written uh, that are posted online uh, about the higher education system has been a, has been a great education for me, and so so I wanted to have a chance to talk about that. What I think you and I share a real sense of the importance of services of value, and I've always appreciated that about you, and and so I'm glad we were able to touch on that today too. Thank you very much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Well, I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's great to talk about, and uh, I look forward to future episodes of your podcast. So a couple of, uh, quite a few things actually struck me as I was listening to this conversation. So this whole idea of how race and social economic status, the disparity um, in, in who gets to go to college in the U.S., and it's interesting because uh, you know that I'm African by heritage. My parents are Nigerian. I was born in the U.S. and sort of raised in different parts of the world. But, you know, I do remain very Nigerian in, in my core. And the idea of going to college in my family and a lot of sort of Nigerians of my peers was never an option. It was it was what you had to do. And it occurs to me that the emphasis that was placed on education from a very young age for us, you know, don't forget, you know, our parents were African, they were immigrants, yet, you know, they made sure the kids went to, I mean, the best schools, went to boarding schools in Europe, applying to college was a process. And I remember growing up and thinking, yeah, but my regular friends, um, my American friends, for example, I bet they don't go through half the stuff we're going through, you know, to get into these schools and, you know, the whole, even before college start, I remember it was such a process in my household, the summer camps we went to, prep things we did, the exchange programs. And listening to Jim talk about this disparity and how sort of the affluent, the experience of, you know, who gets to go to college has a lot to do with a lot of the things that my parents tried to do when we were young in preparation for sort of the sort of person that would be suitable for 
college. It really, for the first time, not maybe not for the first time, but it really came together for me listening to somebody who had a different background articulated like that. Yeah, I had a very similar. I had a very similar experience growing up where I don't feel like it was ever a question of whether or not I would go to college. I was going to go to college. And that was an expectation I think I always, that that was always there for me. It's amazing to listen to Jim talk about the economic impact of getting a college degree in the United States. Something that that also struck me, and a lot of these things seem like no-brainers. You both talked about the fact that people from lower economic backgrounds are five times less likely to go to college. I was thinking five times, hey, that's huge. And then you asked him the why, and he said, you know, it even starts from birth, even before birth. You know, the things, the circumstances around one's birth, you know, are you a product of a single mother, teenage mom, the neighborhood you live in, the sort of prenatal care you get? And I thought, wow, if I'd never actually quite thought about it like that, but it does, it, it does make sense. You know, the circumstances around your birth, your childhood, the stuff that happened even before plays into all of this, where you live, how you live, um, who your influences are, you know, whether you're in a suburban neighborhood where the schools are better or inner city, you know, I guess to most people, it's probably a no brainer, but I didn't always think about it quite like that. Yeah. It really is interesting to um, see the process. I read a book. uh, It was an immigrant story, someone who had fled Somalia and mm. made their way to the United States as a as a kid. And it was interesting to read their story about not even really understanding mm. what the process of applying for college was like. Right. And right. and you talked about everything that your parents went through with you. And I'm thinking about all the things that I'm going through now with I, I've got my son is in his first year at McGill University in Montreal. My daughter's a senior in high school and right in the middle of the college application process now. And I was reading this book of this woman who immigrated to the United States, and she didn't have any kind of foundation or basis to even understand what the college application process was like. And she ended up going to college. She ended up getting a a graduate degree as well. But her guidance for how to apply for college was Google. And her guidance for where to apply for college was Google. And uh, there are so many resources that are available for some people that aren't available for others that really have an impact on how you enter into that college process, where you end up going to school, and what that experience is like. Absolutely. Just to piggyback on that, you know, it it even starts before college, Carter. So I have nieces and nephews who are in, you know, academies like Andover, Phillips, Exeter. And I know that it was, it was a family, family events, the application processes, you know, kids going to writing camps before. I mean, it was like a couple of years process to even get to going to these schools. And this, of course, is all in preparation for college. So when when Jim was talking about his kids, and I guess that's our kids' generation as well, um, about the fact that, you know, because we have means, we are blessed with means, you're doing things that the average kid doesn't get to do. I wouldn't say it's cheating, but, you know, you have a leg up because of not necessarily your academic prowess, more about, you know, what your parents have and and the resources that you have to be able to think and plan and this prep thing that starts even before college. It was a fascinating conversation to hear Jim walk through that process. He and I met when we were in our (laughs) young 20s and his vision, seeing this problem of the disparities back in the in the early 90s and wanting to fix it and then figuring out how to do it through College Possible was really interesting to me and really impressive. He said a lot of things that really resonated with me. This idea that the model was a way to, to bring people together. So this idea that you take AmeriCorps members to do some kind of a national service. So you, you get a good education, you come back. The organization recruited young people who were smart, recent college grads as a way of sort of infusing them into lower income neighborhoods to be mentors to kids who ordinarily might not have thought of going to college. And it reminded me of, you know, my volunteer life and you know that I'm, you know, I'm all about giving back. At the end of the day, 
I'm African to the core. I'm Nigerian before I'm anything else. And one of the reasons why I left the U.S. in 2007, two, th- two reasons. A, I was definitely afraid of raising Black children in the America of 2007. But more importantly, I really wanted an opportunity to come back to a place where I felt was home to give back. Yeah. And in a place like Nigeria, giving back is literally... You literally walk into a room and you flip a switch and you change lives. I mean, that's been my experience here. So this idea of using what you have, what you've gained from an experience, or in my case, a life in the U.S., an education in good schools in the U.S., my travels, and to bring that back to a place where there is so much need and to be able to bring something back to share with people who may not ever get to experience what I experienced. That really resonated. Yeah, a lot of that really, um, really got me thinking about how, so in this case, it's college possible, but just the whole idea of giving of oneself to impact society and community, I I really resonated with that. Well, and I think along those lines, the idea that opportunity is really what's missing for most people, that the kids in college possible that have been impacted by the program, what they're lacking is opportunity and right. and guidance to help take advantage of that opportunity. Right. And it's right. been really impressive to watch how Jim thought through the process of not just saying mm-hmm. college is an opportunity you can take advantage of and leaving it leaving it at that. But he's also said there's an opportunity here that you can take advantage of. Let us show you how to do that. Mm. Because so often I think in the work that nonprofits do the, the, and in charity work, we don't deal with the how. We say, here's an opportunity, you should take advantage of it. And we leave people to try to figure out the how on their own. And what Jim said is, I'm going to give you a mentor that will help you take advantage of this. And I think that was a really critical piece of the success that College Possible has seen. He, he talked about the fact that, you know, kids from middle class or affluent backgrounds have a much richer social network. It's like he talked about the church, the synagogues, coaches, groups, all the things that are mostly lacking in lower income communities. So why not use people who've come from this backgrounds, who've gone to college, who are close enough in age to the people they're trying to mentor, in which case it's more believable, it's more attainable when you're being mentored by somebody or people who are sort of close enough to your generation and your age, even if the experiences are completely different. So I think it's a genius model. And, and, and to think that that model has actually been used by loads of other organizations since is testament to, to its success. I'm curious about the theme that kind of flows through the podcast from from beginning to end here of the impact of being a volunteer and the role that volunteers play in our society in a way that both helps the person doing the volunteering, but also the person that they're serving. I'm so big on on volunteerism because I, I really believe what Jim said about the fact that changing the trajectory of someone's life through volunteerism is something that no amount of money can buy. And it really is a powerful feeling. But I also say, and maybe this is the Catholic sort of um, the faith angle for me, is I always say that I give for very selfish reasons. I give and I volunteer because I know that there is, I'm going to get it back. Somehow God will bless me through my children or everything I do, everything I give to help build a society or a family or whatever, I'm going to get it back somehow. I say through my children, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing I say as a joke, but deep down inside, there is some truth to that. I really believe that when you, when you give of yourself, when you give um, in a way that, and another thing I used to do a lot when I was much younger, say, for example, you know, my parents would send me pocket money or they'd send my tuition and my father would always round up 
whatever the figure was. Right. And I always felt like if I gave when I didn't have it, like when I knew that my tuition money was coming or my apartment money was coming was when I wanted to give because it's when I needed the money. And sure enough, my father would send me and it's been a nice round number and it's money that I wasn't expecting. So, I mean, we joke about it today, but this idea that the more you give, the more you get yeah. is, um, is, is real in my life. It's, it's been real my entire life, all my opportunities and some of the biggest things that have happened to me in my life have been through um, volunteer experiences. And even if it's not something tangible, because I think you're right, I think I think there is something to that. But I, but even if it's not something tangible, it's Kevin Turf's, you know, helpers high that he talked about in an earlier episode. Exactly that power to change the trajectory of someone's life. I, I really like that, and it's it's real. So I'm interested, Adobe. You you've lived in a number of places around the world, and you now have kids of your own. Uh, you went to college in the U.S. I'm curious about your perspective on the college application process from outside the U.S. And as you've looked at it, does the U.S. process mirror what happens in other places? So I know a little bit more now because I now have children. I have two kids in college. So I've sort of been through this process with certainly one of my daughters. So when I was going to college, you know, I, I went to school in the UK. I moved from boarding school in the UK to the US. I sort of knew where I was going. I wanted to go to GW. I actually started off at a community college because I think I was 16 or 17 when I left England. And my parents felt um, not to get lost in the US sort of system. I started out in a community college before going to um, George Washington in, in DC. But I knew I was going to GW. I applied, I got in. It didn't, all, all the stuff I've gone through with my daughter, what I see my, my peers do with their kids, I didn't go through any of that. It didn't seem that complicated. Um, you applied to the school, you had the grades, and you went, and your parents paid tuition, and, and that was it. But it's different now. So I have an interesting story to tell. The plan was always that my kids would have this very broad global education, but the U.S. is where I know college. They were all born in the U.S. and the U.S. is where I felt my kids would end up going to college. My second daughter chose to stay in the U.K. and she's going to Nottingham University in England. And her process was you know, so I was prepared for the college apps, the essays, the interviews, the visits. None of that happened, um, even down to cost. So, um, so my kids are British because of the virtue of the fact that their father's British and they spent quite a few years in, in school in England. The tuition alone was a different experience. After I got over the fact that I would have a child who wasn't going to school in, in the US, was in England, I thought, well, it's actually a lot cheaper. <laughs> Just even... Tuition. Jim talked about the fact that, you know, one thing that's, uh, that's gone up constantly throughout our lives is college tuition. And he said at some point, you know, we have to fix it because it's not sustainable. But apparently, Carter, it is sustainable because it's steadily going up. So now it's not so ridiculous to hear that, you know, going to Harvard or whatever is in excess of 100,000 US dollars. So I was very interested, and that might be an offline conversation, just to find out, is it really... Um, is it not sustainable? Apparently it is. You know, these fees are getting higher and higher. Um, the requirements are getting more and more. And at some point, what are we saying? That only the rich will get a college education? Yeah, it's crazy. I think what we're saying is that the education that the rich get is different than the register mm. than the education that the rest of us get. Going through this process with my son. A year ago, he was looking at a number of private liberal arts colleges that their total cost was going to be seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year. And you think about trying to afford that, and it's just yeah. mind-boggling. Now, as Jim said, from a college perspective, there are kids that they'll go out and discount that for and give you scholarships mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's still, it just it feels. The weight of seeing $80,000 a year for college for four years feels yeah. really heavy. And you know what? It also made me realize. So when we were, when I was in college, I can't remember how much tuition was, but my parents pretty much paid for college, at least yeah. your first degree. And then you got the loans to do your master's and your MBAs if, if you wanted to do more. So also it's cultural, right? So Nigerians don't believe in loans, 
right? First of all, interest, interest rates are ridiculously high. But when I was growing up, having a kid take out a loan to go to college was just not something you did culturally. We just, we just didn't do that. So my kids are going to college now and I cannot imagine forking out $80,000, $100,000 to, to, to go to college. So they will have to take out those loans. And the idea of starting life with, you know, with a loan, it's not, it, culturally, it's difficult for us. You know, you take out a, a, you don't even pay, you don't even take out loans to build a home here. You, do, you, you know, this is a cash society. You buy your house, you build your house, you buy your car. So the idea of being in school, knowing that you already are starting life in debt is, is quite uh, alien to us. But sure. it will have to be our children's reality because nobody's forking out $100,000 cash for anyone to go to college. But I also like, you know, the way he ended it and the way you both ended it by saying, you know, all this is not to scare you. At the end of the day, no matter how you slice it, a college education is worth it. And most kids are going to take out the, those loans. They're going to get the jobs that are going to allow you to pay those loans back. So no matter how you slice it, going to college is, is actually, that's actually the best option. But there is something about the discipline. And so it's, it's what my father always used to say. Yeah, you could, you know, start little and work your way up. But there is something about the discipline of starting a course and finishing. So college isn't just about the knowledge that you gain. It's also it's that way of life. It's the practice of, yeah, the discipline of seeing something through over four years that you don't have to do, but you do it because it's a good thing to do is also it's what makes it all the more worthwhile. I think that's exactly right. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Well, it was a fun conversation with Jim. I really enjoyed it. And it was fun to get to highlight this organization that has had such a huge impact in literally thousands of kids' lives. And it's interesting listening to him at the end and just wondering how he's able to step away. So I, I like the way he, he responded to that. It, it was something I was thinking about. I would imagine that you know, that's, his, that's always going to be his baby. Yeah, such a great legacy for him to have yeah, built that organization. Sure. Adobe, thank you and happy birthday again. Thank you, Carter. Bless you. The Key and the Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. Our social media manager is Laurel Hedrick. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter, and Instagram at Key and Kite Pod. Music for the Key and the Kite is written and performed by the AV Grouse Band. The first album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Their new album, Tell Till Heart, debuted at number seven on the Billboard Blues album chart. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Please join us again in two weeks.